You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. So today we're in Genesis, um, continuing our series. Uh, Today we're going to talk about gender, marriage, and sexuality. Um, You know, just average, run-of-the-mill, walk in the park topics uh, that I'm sure um, there will be no difference uh, of opinion upon or uh, any feeling of uncertainty or uncomfortability uh, for how to talk to others about these issues, right? Um, These issues are at the heart of difficult conversations in our culture, uh, and yet they're also at the very heart of the biblical uh, narrative and of God's word right at the beginning. And, and one of the reasons Genesis 1-11 through is so valuable is because it takes us to, to the heart of some of the issues that have the most heat and not very much light in our culture, and God's word gives us light. God's word gives us truth. God's word gives us clarity in the midst of confusion, in the midst of noise, uh, in the midst of, of brokenness. God's word speaks a picture of God's design as well as a hope of God's redemption. Uh, And so as we think about gender, as we think about marriage, as we think about sexuality, we approach these topics uh, in in light of uh, the the hope that God's word has something to say to us and it brings uh, truth and clarity into the midst of confusion, in the midst of noise, uh, in the midst of confusion. And so uh, I'm excited for us to dig into this. But to begin, I want to actually take us to Romans chapter 12. Uh, and just encourage us, because these issues, I think, are uh, such uh, culturally explosive issues, um, <clears throat> to, to remind us as we talk about these things as well as any number of issues, um, we, we want to be people who are being shaped by God's Word. Romans 12 tells us that we're either shaped in one or two ways, in one of two ways. We're either shaped by the world or we're shaped by the Word. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, to the church at Rome, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. All of life is worship, Romans 12 one says, and all of life is worship, not because we have something to earn from God, but because God has graciously given us more than we ever could imagine. His mercies, which are abundant and rich, uh, He has bestowed upon us, and in response, we are to give our whole embodied selves uh, to God as an act of worship, um, and, and to offer ourselves holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The, the image in my mind is, uh, is, is kind of like in the world where we're standing on, um, on one of those uh, things in the airport, the, not the escalators, but the like uh, walking uh, sidewalk, you know, thing. Like if you just get on there and stand, you're going to, you're going to be carried along. Uh, and in our world, in our culture, if we're just standing there, most likely we're just going to be conformed. It just happens. You don't have to try to be conformed. You just take in a ton of Netflix. You just take in a ton of mainstream, uh, you know, whatever cable news network you, you, you like. You just take in things, often uncritically or just kind of passively taking them in. And before you know it, you're being conformed. That's the, the image of conformity. 
the activity that God has called us to is to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that renewing of our minds comes through God's word. I'm not saying that this, the, the, the point of being renewed uh, in our minds by God's word isn't that it ends all discussion on all controversial matters, but it actually is the beginning of discussion of all controversial matters because we need our minds to be conformed to the truth of God's word in order to enter into the discussions that are happening all around us. And as God's people, we should not just be passive and be conformed, but we should be active in being transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we can be an agent of what God desires us to do and be in the world. Um, that's what he's called us to. <clears throat> and so when we think about gender, marriage, and sexuality, it is very easy to be standing passively and be conformed because the path of least resistance is to conform rather than be a salmon swimming upstream, right? Um, <clears throat> rather, it's easier just to be caught in the flow rather than to, to wrestle with God's word, to seek to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through God's word so that we can reflect God's purpose in the world. So that's, uh, that's the, the encouragement that I have for us on the front end as we talk about these topics today and then continue in discussion, we're, we're either being shaped by one uh, or, or the other of these two things, the world or the word. And, and honestly, there's probably a combination of the world influencing us in ways and us trying to have God's word uh, shape us, but, but often wrestling with what God's word says. It, it's not always a simple process, but this is the, the experience of the Christian is asking God to transform us by the renewing of our minds as we live our lives in the world. God didn't say, hey, uh, just be a, re- a recluse, you know, and pull away from all things. He put us in the world uh, so that we might reflect him. And in order to reflect him, we need our minds to be renewed by his word. So that brings us uh, to God's design for gender, for manhood and womanhood. <clears throat> I'm going to kind of go back and, and just reiterate some things that we said a few weeks ago as we looked at Genesis 1 uh, and Genesis 2, looking at God's design for humanity, <clears throat> because I think it's important to have a holistic perspective uh, on these things. Um, we're not going to be able to say everything today that could and should be said, uh, but we're going to seek to be faithful to pull out what we see here in God's Word. The first thing that I want us to see is that men and women are created equally, but not interchangeably. <clears throat> we see in Genesis 1, 26-28, that men and women are equally made in the image of God. God created them. It says in verse 26 that God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then he equally task them with the creation mandate that men and women are to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and uh, all creeping things. God created them, verse 27, man, man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply, subdue it uh, of, of the earth, subdue it and have dominion over all these things. And then we, we see this, what's called that there in 28, the be fruitful and multiply, to subdue and have dominion is known as the creation mandate. It's given to all people. It's not just given to Christians. It's given to all people, uh, men and women, uh, to, uh, to, to, to see our role in the world as fulfilling God's purposes in the world. Um, and so uh, it, it gives us a Godward direction for thinking about life, thinking about ourselves, that we are, we are not our own, but we belong to God, that there's this Godward bent, that we're created equally, but not interchangeably, equally made in the image of God. 
Uh, We both have the capacity uh, for relationship with God. We both have the calling to represent God in the world. Think about this. When God decided he wanted himself to be represented in the world, he didn't just say, man is the representation of me. He didn't just say, woman is the representation of me. He didn't say that the, the future is female. He didn't say that the future is male. He said that I want male and female to represent me. That is the the beautiful, multifaceted, diverse representation of God. Now, we haven't even spoken of all the different ways in which God, other ways in which God has made us, but these two ways, this distinction, God put in at the beginning because it's a part of how we image Him and reflect Him. And therefore, it's no uh, surprise that God identifies Himself in both language that is reflective of masculine things and feminine things. He speaks of Himself as a mother who cares for His children, the hens of Israel, so to speak. And He he speaks of Himself as Father and ultimately comes uh, when Jesus takes on flesh as male. But God is neither male nor female in the the truest sense. He, He speaks of Himself in masculine language. That's important to be faithful to what the Bible says. He reveals himself in, in, in multiple ways that reflect men and women. Um, Jesus comes and takes on flesh as a man and will live for all eternity as an embodied man, a perfect man, the image um, of God. But God ultimately reveals himself and desires for his image and, and, and who he is to be revealed distinctly through men and women. That's part of his design. Uh, and that shows us the, the value and the dignity and the worth of, of men and women. <clears throat> and, and the equal task within creation that we see to be fruitful and multiply, we've talked through this. And we also see that, they're distinct, that we're distinctly made male and female. <clears throat> this is part of God's design. It's not insignificant. It's not an offhand comment that God makes, nor is it an interchangeable reality. God's good design is for humanity to be made up of men and women Girls and boys, this is how God has designed us. Now, we'll come back repeatedly to this um, and weave this in. And next week, we're actually going to be in Genesis 3, looking at the nature of sin and temptation and uh, how it enters into humanity as well as what we learn from it. But here, I'm just going to assume that we know things go from good uh, to bad to worse uh, once you hit Genesis 3, right? Um, And in Genesis 3, we see that sin distorts God's good design of manhood and womanhood. It distorts it all the way down to a biological reality. Some some people will respond. They say, well, if God made us male and female, why are there intersex people that come into the world? That's a great question. That's a a very uh, complex and difficult thing that uh, a very small number, but a very real number, have to deal with, born with male and female genitalia. What does that say about God's design of manhood and womanhood? Well, it tells us that sin distorts God's good design. And there are some in which that design is, is mixed up and messed up. We talked about last week that there's a real struggle between the physical reality of, of our, of our, our biolo- biological sex and, and what now we discuss as gender identity. Uh, the Bible sees those things as together, that, that our, our selves are embodied selves, that we're, uh, we're made with material and immaterial, and yet we, because of sin, we live in a world where sometimes the immaterial doesn't feel like it lines up with the material, that, that what we feel of who we are doesn't match with the biology uh, that we've been given. <clears throat> and this is a real struggle for, for some, that there is this disconnect. And <clears throat> it's a struggle all the way for some beginning in childhood. 
that continues into adulthood. Uh, it reminds us that we live in a, in, a, uh, in a broken world, a distorted world from God's good design. And we should care for and seek to demonstrate compassion and walk with those who are, are walking through these things. Uh, that there's <clears throat> the reality of that struggle doesn't mean that, that gender is therefore fluid and, and insignificant. It actually reveals the, the goodness of God's design for it and our need to care for people in the midst of it. <clears throat> and, and so there's, there's all kinds of things related to that that we can dig into, but we also, closely connected to this, we, we live in a world where um, things that are reflective of, of men and women become stereotypical, and those stereotypes uh, can, can then be difficult and make men and women question themselves. Uh, I'm not manly enough. I'm not feminine enough. I don't fit the box. I don't check all of these boxes that whatever my image of what a man is or an image of a woman is doesn't match with the world around me or my upbringing. And so there's this disconnect and struggle that comes with those stereotypes. And then there's just a lot of confusion on this matter, as I've mentioned, um, <clears throat> which, which we have questioning of, uh, of, of these realities of, of what it means to be male and female, and so we see how sin distorts God's good design of manhood and womanhood. And because of the presence of sin, we shouldn't be surprised by the struggles uh, that, that people have. And we should also have a sense of humility and a sense of compassion and a commitment to being faithful to what God says while loving people like God loves us as we walk through these things. That's what God has called us to. We see that men and women are created equally but not interchangeably, <clears throat> even as sin distorts that design. Secondly, we see that men and women are created differently, but complementary. Now, Genesis 1 gives us that 30,000-foot view of creation. It says, God created us male and female in his own image. He gave us the command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, and have dominion over it. Well, Genesis 2 then zooms in and gives us a closer look at how man and woman are made, how they're made differently, but how by design they complement one another. And complement not like, hey, you look nice today, but like divine fittedness, uh, like the, the purpose and design of God, uh, that they're equally valued, uh, equally valuable, and have equally valuable but different roles within God's ordering of creation. There's a book uh, that I don't have up here, but it's called Men and Women in the Church by... Uh, pastor and author Kevin DeYoung, uh, which I think is actually really helpful. And we're, uh, when we get our book um, kind of area back up, we'll probably order this book just because it just walks through uh, different passages uh, that relate to this topic, one of them obviously being Genesis 1 through 3, and I, I think gives, um, gives a, a solid articulation of a complementarian view of these things, uh, which is what I'm uh, arguing today and which I believe God's Word presents us with. Uh, but he says the creation mandate of filling the earth and subduing it applies to both sexes, but in a way, asymmetrically, he said man is endowed, um, <clears throat> not, not universally, but often with greater biological strength and is fitted especially for tilling the soil and taming the garden, while the woman possessing within her the capacity to cultivate new life is fitted especially with filling the earth and tending to the communal aspects of the garden. We see that there is this um, different um, roles and yet complementary roles. And, and in fact, this is what uh, our passage spoke to 
after God uh, creates Adam outside the garden, it says in verse 15 that God puts Adam in the garden to work and to keep it. And while he's there, he gives them the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then it says that uh, previously Adam had named all of the animals, but in verse 18, the Lord identifies that it's not good that man should be alone. That's an important statement, right? Because we saw how all throughout Genesis 1, when God created, he said, it's good, it's good. Is very good. Now he says it's not good that man be alone. And so he says, I will make him a helper fit for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. Whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. Uh, This is given not, as a minute I'll show, not to speak of uh, Adam's creativity, uh, so to speak, as much as to reveal the authority that God had given man in the naming of creation, this aspect of subduing and having dominion as he names them. Um, And it says, after this, there there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. And the woman said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here in this passage, as I said, we see both uh, God's design for manhood and womanhood, at least the, the early patterns of it, as well as a, <clears throat> an understanding of marriage and God's gift of marriage, uh, and even in that, uh, how it speaks to our understanding of sexuality. And so we see man and women created differently and yet complementary. <clears throat> and, and the first thing that we see here in this is that God has created man as the head, We see this in a number of different ways. We see it in the order of creation. He creates Adam first. In and of itself, that's not significant. Uh, God made aardvarks and bull weevils before he made Adam, right? So just the ordering isn't in and of itself important, but it's particularly uh, that he made Adam and he gives him this responsibility or this accountability in being made first. The the initial work of toiling and keeping the garden he gives uh, to Adam. Uh, and as well, the spiritual responsibility uh, of kind of, in a way, he's not only the worker in the garden, but also the priest of maintaining holiness in the garden uh, in the sense of the command of holiness that was given in verses 16 through 17 is given to Adam. And then we see uh, the headship of man, the authority of man, and the naming of the animals. And in fact, also in the naming of the Eve, it says in, uh, in verse 23, it's man who first speaks and it's not by accident that when man first sees woman, he burst out with a poem, right? Like he, he speaks and, and, and he rejoices in what God has provided, uh, particularly as one who is complementary to him and is one with him. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. One commentator, I'm just kidding, it's not a commentator. I, I, as I read this, I thought it was fitting that God gave man the first word. Uh, because he knew that man would not get the last word, right? Um, And so uh, it it was fitting in how God designed um, humanity that he creates Adam first. He creates man first, and with that comes uh, headship, comes a certain uh, responsibility of leadership. We also see uh, that this sense of headship, which 
uh, is uh, reflected as well in the fall because Satan inverts the order of God's creation. He comes to Eve. Not because Eve is gullible and more susceptible, women are more likely to sin. That's not at all what Genesis 3 is saying. It's actually Satan inverting the order of God's creation and going to Eve while man is passive and different to his calling of spiritual responsibility. Um, and, and Eve is tempted and takes and gives to her husband and together they fall. But what does God do when he shows up? He goes to Adam and he says, where are you? Not so he can find them, but so that they can, they can find themselves and reveal themselves now being separate from God, now being aware of sin. And it's Adam that God initially holds accountable for their sin. And then even in the cursing of the ground and of the relational cursing of the woman, it says of the cursing of the woman, her desire will be for her husband <clears throat> And he shall rule over you. That they're, they're already, because of sin, is this, uh, this tension that's entered into the male-female relationship, particularly within marriage, uh, that's reflective of how the, the good design of male headship can be distorted by sin. And now, as, as we talk about headship and God's uh, design for man as a, a leader, we see a few different aspects of this that, that I think bear out here in the Genesis account. We see the initiative that, that man takes in, in the naming of the animals, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the aspect of him be, being made first and the work that he is to do to, to develop the ground. He's put in the garden to work it and to keep it. That comes with it, a sense of provision as well as protection that's entrusted to Adam and his call to work and to keep, as well as, I think, significantly a spiritual responsibility that he was the one who was to pass down the command of verses 16 through 17, and most likely in light of how Eve responds uh, to, to the serpent. Uh, Adam does the typical pharisaical thing. He goes even beyond the command and says to Eve, even if you, even if you touch it, you'll die. Uh, so you can just imagine, sometimes uh, you, know, you, you, you have a rule that you're told and you try to pass that rule on to others and you're like, don't even think about it, you know, or, or you're, it's going to go bad. That's in essence what Adam does. Um, it even distorts the command that he's to pass on. So we see these aspects of his, uh, his leadership uh, reflected that I think are, are patterns that bear out, as in a moment we're going to see in Ephesians 5, as God says, all that was taking place here in Genesis 2 is, is a picture and a portrait of the gospel of Jesus' relationship to his people. And within the marriage relationship, these patterns of initiative, provision, protection, spiritual responsibility are going to be borne out in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. <clears throat> and so we have this picture of man is created as head, which is speaking of his leadership, and woman is created as helper. You notice, as it says there in Genesis 2, that uh, it wasn't good for man to be alone, so he makes man fall asleep and takes a rib and creates woman. <clears throat> woman is created as a helper. Now, <clears throat> uh, I don't do this often, but sometimes when I'm cooking in the kitchen or working in the kitchen or maybe I'm uh, doing yard work uh, and Amelia's out there with me or John's out there with me, I've got a helper, uh, all right? <clears throat> This isn't that kind of helper. 
I don't know if you've ever had a child help you in the kitchen or a child help you do anything, uh, but you're, you're really just not getting much help and you're kind of encouraging them and bringing them up along the way, accepting the fact that they're not there really to help you, but you're there to help them think that they're helping you, right? <laughs> um, that's not what this is. Um, <clears throat> this, this image of helper is not one of subservience. It's not one of inferiority. It's actually a reflection of the very character of God. God is helper throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus 18.4, it says, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. God as helper defends. God as helper sees and cares for the suffering. Psalm 10 says, But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it and take hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. God as helper supports. Psalm 20 says, May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. He protects. Psalm 33:20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He upholds. Psalm 54, verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He delivers from distress. In Psalm 70, yet I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. There's a prayer. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. God is helper rescues, Psalm 72, for he will deliver the needy who cry out and who are afflicted, who have no help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy to save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. And then the God is helper comforts in Psalm 86, 17, you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Far from being inferior or subservient, God gives woman as a helper, which is vital which is necessary and essential for God's purposes in creation to be fulfilled. Like if you ever gave a man a project, uh, you know he needs a helper. But in an even greater sense than that, God says for the work uh, of the kingdom work that I've given man and woman, for, for, for my kingdom to be established on the earth, for my uh, character to be reflected in the world, man is given as head and woman is given as helper. <clears throat> I really found uh, the work of Susan Hunt, uh, who uh, often teaches on Titus II discipleship, really helpful uh, in, in unpacking what is womanhood uh, as it's reflected here, what's being spoken of uh, that's essential to womanhood. Interestingly, this, what I laid out, God is helper. If you go read uh, Proverbs 31, we, if you've been in women's Bible studies or women's ministry, you've heard about the Proverbs 31 wife. Um, the Proverbs 31 wife is pretty, pretty legit, right? Like she looks a lot like God as helper, uh, taking care of, providing for, industrious in her work, speaking up for the vulnerable, uh, upholding, delivering, rescuing even, comforting. It, it's the kind of work that, uh, that, that is far greater uh, than the stereotypes that we, we often impose upon womanhood. Uh, and so what you see in God's design for helper, a woman is given as a helper, a multifaceted, indispensable role that includes supporting, comforting, defending, caring, uh, promoting, encouraging. All of these things reflected in the idea uh, of, of uh, woman's role as helper uh, that's essential in the fulfilling of God's purposes in creation. And then in the fall, as, as it goes on, as Adam uh, looks at Eve, uh, he says that in verse, uh, Genesis 3, verse 20, man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
we, we see in addition to this aspect of helper or a particular outworking of it is the idea of, um, <clears throat> of being a, a life giver or a nurturer. And Susan Hunt says it this way, a nurturer of community and compassion in relationships. Uh, that, that is essential, that obviously has a biological reality that there is no life in the world uh, without uh, the distinct role of women, but also in a, in a relational sense, uh, there is a nurturing and a compassion that's reflected, a life-giving uh, work that God has for women that's to be born out either in singleness, in marriage, in child-rearing, in relationships, in community uh, that is unique to woman. And that these two things go together. And that what we need is to appreciate both men and women as God has designed them. And I think often we have an image in our head of a man or a woman that's our, maybe a parent or a friend who's like our ideal version of what a man is or a woman is. Um, and sometimes it can be easy to draw comparisons, and sometimes we maybe feel like we fall short or we're not a, uh, you know, the woman that we should be or the man that we should be. Um, you may not feel like you're a strong initiative taker, or you may be feel prone to passivity as a woman. You may not feel like you're much of a, a nurturer and all these things as you hear this. My encouragement um, is to continually look to God, open yourself up to Him and to His Word, and believe and trust that God is working in you to make you the man or the woman that he has called you to be, that he has designed you to be. We give ourselves to him, and he helps us in, in turn carry out the calling. Because, as we said, sin distorts God's design for manhood and womanhood. Well, it's God's transforming work through the gospel that has the ability to renew and strengthen and direct us to be the men and women that God's called us to be. And, and this, this particular pattern uh, that we're going to see is going to especially be reflected in the, in the complementary roles of men and women in marriage. And this is our third point that we have to say quickly um, as we move to marriage and sexuality, that men and women, first, I'm going to say, are crea- second, I'm going to say they're created for one another. But first, I want to make this point that men and women are first created for God. So we often... Um, psychologize Genesis 2.18 when it says that the Lord said to Adam that it's not good for man to be alone. It doesn't say that Adam was lonely. It doesn't say that Adam felt isolated and needed a companion to, um, to be there with him. It, it, isn't, it isn't in any way saying that actually Adam noticed something wrong with himself, but it's actually God who identifies the issue and says that it's not good for man to be alone. There wasn't this overwhelming sense of loneliness that Adam had. It wasn't a psychological issue, but it was a divinely ordered and necessary issue that God raises. It's God who identifies that it's not good for Adam to be alone. And what this says is that we first and foremost, before man and woman are created for one another, as we're going to see in marriage, they're created for God and that it's possible to walk with God and be satisfied and fulfilled apart from any other marriage relationship or any other relationship that God's made us for himself. We know this to be the case because Jesus, the, the image of God in perfect form as a human being, was single. The Apostle Paul, the missionary par excellence, was singled and commended singleness as a gift from God that has the advantage of being fully devoted to Christ. And, and we also know that uh, this, this idea of being made for God introduces us into the family of God because until marriage, God has designed all men and women to function and relate to one another as brothers and sisters, and particularly in Christ, to relate to one another as brothers and sisters 
in the family of God. So men and women are created for God. And I say this because here in a moment we're about to see the significance of marriage. But here it's also important to say that God has something to say uh, for those who are single, and particularly Christian singleness, uh, and I'm, I'm saying Christian in the sense of as God intends singleness, is to be designed by sexual purity, by meaningful friendships and relationships, and wholehearted devotion to God. You can check out 1 Corinthians seven twenty-five through 40 as Paul unpacks that. Um, but we, we understand that men and women being made in the image of God are, are first and foremost made for God to know and enjoy a relationship with Him. Um, and, and what I want to say is that marriage is central to God's plan for humanity. Therefore, single or married, we should all honor marriage and hold it in high regard. Marriage is good. It shouldn't be elevated to, to most important or most significant, but it's good and it's a part of God's design for humanity. And it's a part of God's intention to display the gospel in the world, according to Ephesians 5. So we should honor and uphold marriage. However, marriage is not central to being fully man or fully woman. It's not central to our sense of value and fulfillment. Therefore, singleness like marriage is just one of the contexts that God intends to use for us to glorify Him and for us to represent Him in the world. So married or single, we're made for God and God has a plan for us. I love how Sam Alberry says it. He says, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, Jesus and the church, according to Ephesians 5, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel, uh, that Jesus alone is enough. And in a world that says we're incomplete unless we're fulfilling our sexual desires, Christian singleness testifies that there's a greater reality beyond sexual fulfillment. That there's a, an intimacy deeper than romantic love. It testifies <clears throat> that you don't have to, um, <clears throat> to satisfy your sexual desires in order to fulfill your God-given purpose in this life. God's made us with sexual desire, but those desires point to a deeper longing and union that we were made for, ultimately faith in Jesus. So in the end, Christian singleness testifies that Jesus is enough, that the gospel is enough. God has created us for him, and that speaks into the very real reality of singleness, either the season of singleness in your youth or perhaps a life uh, time and a calling towards singleness throughout your life. God has a purpose and a plan uh, for singleness in order for you to glorify him and represent him in the world, just as we see here in a moment that he has a plan for marriage. Men and women are created for one another. <clears throat> now, within this, I want to speak to, to sexuality um, as well, because the Bible doesn't raise the issue of sex and sexuality and then raise the issue of marriage. The Bible raises the issue of marriage, and it's in the context of marriage that we're to understand the place of sex as well as the, our sense of sexuality. So sex, as, as it's laid out here, we see that men and women are brought together in marriage. There's this leaving, uh, the, uh, the husband leaving his father and mother holding fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And it's not an accident that often it's said when you have a daughter and she gets married, you don't so much lose a daughter, but you gain a son. But if you have a son, when they get married, you, you lose the son. There's this sense of the, uh, the man's calling to leave his mother and father. It's not saying total abandon of relationship, but there's this new union. It speaks to the male's leadership in that and, and creating it, as well as the woman's capacity for community and nurturing life. And that it's often through her family's relationship that those um, family, that those relationships continue to be nurtured. Uh, We see this uh, forming of a relationship that's a one flesh union. And so within this, we see that sex is intended to be understood and our sense of sexuality is intended to be understood within the context of marriage. Sex isn't intended to be tried out to see if you're compatible with a person. Sex isn't intended to be just a hookup. Um, It's always a bearing of oneself, a revealing of oneself, a sharing of yourself in the most personal and intimate way, and indeed bringing together two unique people, complementary people, as one. Sex isn't to be consumed via pornography. Sex isn't to be um, taken in as a commodity, a disposable thing that's not significant, that's just an expression of ourself, just a satisfaction of pleasure. None of those things are how God has designed sex and our sexuality. God has given sex as a good gift within the context of marriage. These desires uh, aren't to lead us, nor are they defining of us. The Bible doesn't teach, Christianity doesn't teach that your sexuality is your true identity. The Bible teaches us that our identity is wrapped up in being made in the image of God and and being redeemed by Christ. And therefore, just as I said in singleness, that there there is a significance and a fulfillment beyond uh, the expression of our sexual desires. And yet the pattern that God has given for sex and sexual desires are within the context of marriage. And that marriage is to be between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship for life to glorify God and to display his gospel in the world. That's what God designs marriage to be. We don't have time to to go here. You can go back in our relationship series we did last fall, and we preached through Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 to unpack this. But we see uh, God's design for for marriage and and how it's unpacked in the relationship between husband and wife, the picture of manhood and womanhood that we get in Genesis 1, how it's reflected in turn uh, in Ephesians 5 that the man is called to lead uh, his wife through sacrificial love and care as Christ loved the church. And the woman, uh, the wife, is called to submit and respect her husband by making room for and encouraging her husband's leadership. And all of this, headship and submission, is to be best understood within the context of believers being submitted to Christ and mutually committed to one another in loving and serving one another. Uh, I can't remember now, I think it was Matt Chandler who said this, when you see men and women submitted to Christ working out leadership and submission in a Christian marriage, nobody's going to look at that as they submit themselves to Christ and go, ooh, how disgusting is that? How outdated? How old-fashioned is that? No, it's, a, it's beautiful and it portrays the gospel. And yet, because of sin, all of that gets distorted. Men neglect their spiritual responsibility. They don't sacrificially love. They selfishly love. They don't care. They care for themselves, abusing their wives and, uh, and neglecting their responsibilities. The picture of, of a wife encouraging and supporting uh, her husband is, is distorted. All the way back in Genesis 3, we see that the desire to be over them and the relational tension and the subversion that takes place in those relationships, all of it can be distorted and broken because of sin. 
And yet God's good design still stands. And the way back to God's good design is through the gospel. And in this, as we see God's pattern in creation, uh, we, we can't unpack all of this, but we see uh, his, his design for marriage and for sex within marriage to be between a man and a woman, how that speaks to sexuality, where there's so much confusion in our culture. This is, on one hand, this is going to sound like the most offensive thing I could possibly say in our culture. And yet what God is saying here is that God has given men and women to experience sex in the context of marriage, and that marriage covenant alone, every other expression of sin and sexual activity outside of that is sin, according to God. And it also shows us that within that, often it's our sexual desires that are first or, or maybe even most significant in reflecting our rebellion against God. Just go read Romans 1, 24 through 32, and it shows how man and woman both give up their natural God-given uh, <clears throat> compatibility for men for women and women for men, and they turn it towards themselves, their sexual desires for themselves and homosexuality. It's not talking about uh, just some unique expression of that. It's speaking both of male and female uh, intentional uh, giving of themselves to one another and sexual sin as a reflection of God's judgment. As man giving themselves to their desires and, and, and expressing their rebellion against God. And at the same time, Romans 1 contains the greatest hope we possibly could have. As it expresses judgment, it holds out the hope of the gospel. What are we to say to the lesbian couple that comes to faith in Christ or, or to the person who's attracted to the same sex and is seeking to understand how to love Christ and follow Christ? What do you say to the person who's been hooked on pornography and is coming off of it, trying to figure out what does it look like to relate to men or women in the way that they're supposed to? What do, what do we say uh, to, to the person who's sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend going, every time I do this, I feel guilty? To the person who says, I just want to stop feeling guilty for my sin, so I'm going to celebrate it in hopes that that voice in my conscience that tells me I'm sinning against God will go away and I'll feel better. What do we say? We say that there's hope in the gospel, that there's forgiveness of sin, all sin. Every version of sexual sin there is, there is forgiveness in Christ we say that not only is there forgiveness found in Christ, that there's a place for you in the church. There's a place for you to belong in the church. There's a place for you to find family in the church. There's a place for you to find friendship and community in the church. No matter how deep uh, or how far our sexual sin takes us, grace is deeper still. Abundant grace, abounding grace, greater than all of our sin. That's, that's our hope our hope as we live in a fallen world with our sexuality and our sin, sexual desires distorted and twisted and turned inward upon ourselves. The hope that we have is the gospel in the midst of a world in which marriage can be broken and, uh, and distorted from what God designs. What's our hope? It's the gospel. And God and his good creational designs made man and woman different but complementary not by accident, but so that he could put on display. Ephesians 5 says that this is about the mystery of the gospel, of God displaying what it means for him to be in covenant relationship with his people. He made us this way to showcase who he was and what it means to know him. And so all these things, though deeply controversial, take us to the heart of the gospel. And that's where we come today <clears throat> as our band comes up.